I'll tell you something funny about this collection. The first title was Too Jewish. Oh, my goodness. Really? Don't you think the stories are really too Jewish? Shalom, and welcome to the Too Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Mike Rothschild, author of Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guest on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. Two Jewish is paid for by Two Jewish Radio Programs and Podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and Two Jewish. Shalom. We have to start our Two Jewish show this morning celebrating the release of some of the Israeli hostages held by the brutal Palestinian terrorists of Hamas. In a deal that took more than five weeks to negotiate, 50 innocent Israeli children and women were released. Hamas received a four-day ceasefire, and about 150 Palestinian terrorist prisoners, some of them women and underage detainees, were released by Israel. The negotiations were handled by a small U.S. contingent of representatives, some Egyptians, and a similarly small group from Qatar, which is an American ally of sorts, but funds Hamas and allows its leaders to maintain luxurious homes in Doha. It is a great relief to see some of the hostages released after their multi-week torture by Hamas. Mind you, all the Hamas terrorist commanders who ordered these atrocities of October 7th hang out in Qatar, or Qatar as it's sometimes pronounced, they are protected by the emir of that country and therefore can be influenced by Qatar. Meanwhile, the people of Gaza experience the violence of the war that their leaders started. Under severe military pressure from the Israel Defense Forces, Hamas was losing commanders, men, and infrastructure hourly. It agreed to give up about a fifth of the hostages that it brutally took prisoner into Gaza on October 7th. You know... Every single hostage taken by Hamas, including three-year-old children, babies, Holocaust survivors, represented a war crime committed by these Palestinian terrorists, a vile crime against humanity. They released them only out of fear of total destruction. But Hamas was and is not the only party under tremendous pressure here. Israel's leadership, especially Bibi Netanyahu, failed dismally on October 7th to protect Israeli citizens. Netanyahu has been facing the anger of the families of the 240 hostages carried off into brutal captivity by this Islamist enemy. Netanyahu needed this deal politically as much as Hamas needed the ceasefire militarily. Please don't call this a humanitarian pause. It may have taken the Israeli war cabinet seven hours to agree to the deal, but there was little doubt it would approve it. It had no choice, really. Now, Hamas did not, of course, release all the hostages it holds. Look, they once traded one kidnapped Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, for over a thousand Hamas 
brutal terrorists held in Israeli prisons. They were surely not going to give up their human shields, their best bargaining chip against Israel all at once. In the end, these evil Palestinian terrorists had to make the deal as they faced continued annihilation militarily. So finally, these 50 hostages, children, mothers, the elderly, imprisoned in tunnels the Hamas terrorists constructed to hide from the war they imposed on the civilians of Gaza, are free after nearly seven weeks. This complex deal is to the profound credit of President Joe Biden, whose representatives worked tirelessly with Qatar and Israeli leadership to get those hostages home. Even Bibi Netanyahu, no friend of Biden's, credited the President of the United States with this redemption of captives, Pidyon Shfuyim, a central mitzvah in Judaism. Thank God, and Biden, and to some degree the pressure of the Israeli public that they are free at last. Now, only 180 more hostages to free from these evil people. This short ceasefire is a military gift to Hamas, allowing it to rearm, resupply, redeploy, and steal the fuel intended for hospitals and other essential services so it can power its evil operations. It will be a challenge for the IDF to maintain the military advantages it has achieved in hard fighting over these past several weeks and to resume operations successfully. It will do so because it must ultimately eradicate the evil Palestinian terrorists of Hamas. Now, with all that is happening in Israel, including right here in Tucson, Arizona, we'll have Israel Solidarity Shabbat this coming Friday night and Saturday at synagogues throughout the region, there are still Jewish holidays to celebrate, and there is vital Jewish life to live. My friends, Hanukkah is just a week and a half away now, beginning Thursday night, December 7th. The eight nights of Hanukkah represent an opportunity to renew our commitment to Jewish identity. And an interesting key to this festival is the timing of it, that is, the time of day, or rather, night. As you probably know, all Jewish holidays begin at sundown, but none are quite so night-oriented, not even Passover as Hanukkah. Bringing light into the season of the shortest days and longest nights of the year, Hanukkah is that rare Jewish holiday in which nearly all observances are after dark. Sure, it's Hanukkah during the days, too, but it's the magical lighting of Hanukkiyot, Hanukkah menorahs, or candelabra, lit every night of the long festival, adding one more light every night that is the central observance of the holiday of lights. We are commanded to fulfill the great mitzvah of Pirsomet Hanes, publicizing the miracle of God's redemption at this time of year in those days long ago. And nothing does that better than lights burning brightly in the window, reminding us of the miraculous quality of God's redemption. Although considered a minor holiday in the Jewish religious calendar, in America, Hanukkah has become something quite major. In part, that's because of its proximity to the other end of the American calendar year festival that everybody likes to celebrate, you know, Kwanzaa. 
But in part, it's also because Hanukkah is a festival that celebrates religious freedom, the right to worship God as we choose. Without the events we commemorate at Hanukkah, the victory of the small Jewish guerrilla band led by the Maccabees over the mighty Syrian Greek army of the Seleucid Empire back in the years 167 to 165 BCE, well, without that, the belief in one God would have been destroyed and religious freedom eliminated. There would be no Jews, which means no Christians and no Western civilization. For that matter, no Muslims, since both Christianity and Islam are direct daughter-descendant religions of Judaism. It's a constant reminder that religious freedom needs to be protected now as in those days long ago. The story of that great revolt, catalyzed by the egotism of King Antiochus IV Epiphanes and his need not only to be obeyed but worshipped, is an underdog narrative. It's about how a group of Jews refused to bow down to an idol or surrender their right to study Torah, to educate their children in belief in God and the moral and practical principles of Judaism. They fought, they died, they eventually triumphed. And when they recaptured the temple in Jerusalem, they cleansed it and relit the great menorah, dedicating it anew to worship and holiness. Chanukat Habayit. The very word Chanukah means dedication. So when we celebrate starting next week, December 7th is the first night, December 10th is our great Lighting the Way celebration at Beit Simcha, my congregation. When we celebrate eating anything fried in oil, especially latkes, the fabulous potato pancakes, we are celebrating something more than a kid's festival. We are enjoying our religious freedom, defended and reestablished nearly 2,200 years ago by the Maccabees, and still something we sometimes need to fight for. Religious freedom for all religions is a great Jewish ideal worth fighting for in their day and today. To play us in is our first pre-Hanukkah song. Here's Naomi Less's fun song, Eight Nights.
That was Naomi Less's Hanukkah song, Eight Nights. You can hear that at Beit Simcha's Lighting the Way Celebration, Sunday night, December 10th, the fourth night of Hanukkah. Wonderful food, drink, music, stories by internationally renowned storyteller Jim Weiss. A fabulous celebration for everyone. Join us. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org. At a time when conspiracy theories are everywhere and anti-Semitism is rising sharply all around the world, our guest on Two Jewish This Morning, Mike Rothschild, is an expert on just those subjects. His new book explains how conspiracy theories are created and spread, why many of them go back to the original merchant banking family, the Rothschilds, no relation, and have been recycled and morphed into the crazy but popular slanders we hear and see everywhere online and in society today. Meet Mike Rothschild and find out, well, all about these conspiracy theories, including Jewish space lasers, when he joins us in a moment here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Light the way for Hanukkah and Beit Simha's great 5th anniversary celebration. It's the best Hanukkah celebration in Arizona and possibly the world. Storyteller Jim Weiss, internationally known to generations of adults and children for his wide-ranging body of fantastic stories, world history, classic literature, children's and biblical stories, will share his storytelling talents at Lighting the Way. Congregation Beit Simha's 5th anniversary and Hanukkah celebration, Sunday, December 10th at 5 p.m., at 12111 North La Jolla at Tangerine. Beit Simha at La Jolla. Catalina Catering will provide outstanding food, including gourmet latkes. There will be wine, bubbly, great music by the High Five, Hanukkah candle lighting, and a magnificent birthday cake to mark five years of growth, learning, and community. Everyone is invited to join in the festivities celebrating rededication and success for Tucson's newest and fastest-growing congregation and the only synagogue in the Northwest. Tickets and sponsorships are available at BaitSimhaTucson.org. That's BaitSimhaTucson.org. Or by sending a check to BaitSimha at 5501 North Oracle, Suite 125 in Tucson at 85704. Call 520-276-5600. For more information. We welcome to Jewish this morning. Our guest this morning, Mike Rothschild, is a, an expert on conspiracy theories, not because he believes in them, but because he knows a lot about them. He's the author of the new book, Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. He also uh, is the author of The Storm is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult, and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, this is surely timely. Um, now, first, let's get this right out of the way. You are not related to the Barons Rothschild. I am not. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do with this book is kind of draw the line between, you know, the much more famous Rothschilds and the uh, not famous Rothschilds to whom I belong. And uh, my my dad actually gave me a, a private press book of family genealogy, and it makes it clear that uh, his you know, great, great, great grandfather. Uh, they're from a totally different part of Germany. Uh, they came to the U.S. in the late 1800s. 
And of course, the Rothschilds never actually emigrated to the U.S. And it's one of the things I write about in the book. Is that Correct. They really never established themselves in the U.S. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, all right, so let's start from the beginning. Um, what's a conspiracy theory? Oh, that's actually a great question to set the groundwork. So my kind of working definition of what a conspiracy theory is is that it's a theorized meeting of two or more individuals to plan something that will either enrich themselves or harm the greater community. And in that sense, um, it's kind of any cleverly, I mean, it's usually cleverly plotted or it wouldn't get any buy-in, right? They're not stupid, the people that do this. Right. And that's one of the contradictions that you find very quickly in studying conspiracy theories. They are supposedly concocted by the most evil and most conniving people on Earth uh, to, to do sort of earth-shaking things that will change everything about our lives, but they can also be figured out in five minutes by a guy on the Internet. <laughs> so um, where did conspiracy theories start? I mean, this must go deep into history, right? You know, the idea of looking at an unexplained event and saying, I know what's really going on here, or what aren't they telling us, that really goes back to the beginning of recorded history. There are, uh, you know, Roman historians who write about rumors and conspiracy theories about the great fire of Rome, that, you know, Nero set it on purpose to and, consolidate his power or whatever. So and then, and then the played idea, violin, of course. Right, even though right. They didn't and then played violin violence. to distract us from what was really going on. Um, the first Jewish, first, I guess, conspiracy theory about Jews, like, where does it come from? Why does it develop? You know, that it really goes back to the the beginning, I mean, really to Roman times again, where you had uh, much more religious-based expulsions and repressions. Uh, you know, you had the conspiracy theory that the Jews were the ones who killed Jesus Christ. You had the conspiracy theory that emerged in England in the 1100s of the blood libel, that, uh, you know, Jewish elders were kidnapping Christian children and using their blood for their rituals. Uh, you certainly have now the modern conspiracy theory of Jews, uh, you know, having total control of the media and politics and all of that. But the idea that Jews have been sort of conspiring amongst themselves to keep Christian communities down, it really goes back to the, the you know, the time before Christ. In, in a way, it's uh, closely allied with the development of anti-Semitism, but it takes anti-Semitism, we hate Jews because they're not like us, and moves it to a whole different level. And we'll explore kind of modern conspiracy theories, including the Rothschilds and, oh boy, uh, lots of others. And we come back in a moment with Mike Rothschild here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a fabulous Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson and the Catalina Foothills, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this fall and winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives daily to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation, northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the Tucson metro area, providing weekly Shabbat services Friday night and Saturday morning, youth and adult education academy courses every week, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520 
1-800-276-5675. Religious School at Beit Simcha is available for school-aged children and grandchildren, Fabulous Hebrew School, Barnbot Mitzvah Programs, Torah Tykes Experience, Confirmation Teen Programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Hanukkah is coming fast. Celebrate every night with us on our Beit Simcha Facebook page with our now traditional daily, well, kind of nightly menorah lighting. And especially join us at Beit Simcha as we celebrate our fifth anniversary on the fourth night of Hanukkah. That means we light five candles. Sunday, December 10th, 5 p.m., lighting the way. It'll be a fabulous festive evening of great food, terrific music, wonderful stories, candles, and joy, featuring internationally renowned storyteller Jim Weiss. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Join us in person Friday night and Saturday morning. Email us, rabbi at beitsimchatusan.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, tucson.org. Join us Friday night on our Facebook page if you can't come in person. Friday night services are at 6.30 p.m. for Shabbat celebration. Saturday morning, Torah studies at 9 a.m., services at 10 a.m., all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading them. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. Our wonderful religious school is available in person and also on Zoom. For more information about Beit Simcha, to come to services, religious school, Torah Tykes, Bar and Bat Mitzvah, Confirmation, high school programs, rich array of Adult Education Academy courses, and all of our services, go to BeitSimchaTucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520 520- 276-5675. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the most vital and fastest growing Jewish congregation and community in all of Southern Arizona. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, a kvetch or a kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O, jewishradio18 at gmail.com, or visit our website, 2jewishradio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, streaming us from 2jewishradio.com, or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store, very popular Jewish podcast, top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify as well. Post a rating, review to Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. 
While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. Tom, we have been discussing the evident and virulent anti-Semitism that's been going on ever since the October 7th brutality. Um, In many parts of the world, some of the things that are permitted and considered freedom of speech in America and even in England, I guess, uh, are not so free. So you can't walk around wearing a Nazi armband or chanting um, about genocide in in many countries, but you can in America. Uh, Give us a little bit of a view of that. Sure. Um, And by the way, genocide of the Jews, of course, is what we're hearing now. Right. I mean, it's extremely interesting that you raise this angle of this problem because within the past 48 hours, I had two conversations with overseas friends, one of whom is a senior Turkish diplomat for whom I have the utmost admiration. She's just terrific at her job. She's been an ambassador. Um... And the other is a guy who lives in Vienna but grew up in Salzburg uh, and was, in fact, for many years, my personal trainer in Vienna. So he's vacationing in the States. He called me at random, and we started talking about this stuff. And he said, you know, I'm amazed at the degree to which neo-Nazi paraphernalia, symbols, flags, and speech are permitted in the U.S. In Austria, you go to jail for this. In Germany, you go to jail for this. So I thought, okay, <clears throat> these countries which were the hotbed, sort of the bales of the cradle of Nazism, might have reason to have very harsh laws. But then, to my shock, in conversation with my Turkish friend, I had actually sent her a photo that I saw somewhere online of a bookstore in Istanbul carrying a sign in the front door that said, in both English and Turkish, Jews not allowed. Hmm. And I was skeptical, and I, I sent it to her, and I said, is this fake news? She said, unfortunately, it's real, but that bookshop is op- is owned by an Iranian, not a Turk, and he's already been lynched, which I don't think she meant literally. <laughs> I think she meant figuratively, but right. he, he's been silenced because hate speech is not allowed in Turkey. Um, and then she proceeded to tell me that she was shocked to learn that the mobs of students chanting, Israel, Israel, you can't hide, we want Jewish genocide, were not immediately sent to jail. She said, she can, I can assure you that in my country, people who say such things find themselves in prison. You know... Um What's that old, uh, 
know, Oliver Wendell Holmes or something, my right to swing my arms ends where your nose begins, or more accurately, my right to free speech ends when I shout fire in a crowded theater. Uh, it sort of feels like that should be true about chanting about the genocide of human beings. And I know that we don't accept that in the United States, but boy, something to think about. Hate speech can be punished under certain circumstances, but it's not a it's not a blanket thing by any means. And many Americans tend to treat as an absolute the right, the freedom of speech, also the freedom to bear arms, um, and sometimes the two produce frightening combinations. Do they do indeed? Well, um, our hopes are that things will improve. Um, right now, it's just hope. Right. Thanks, Tom. We will talk next week. I share that hope with you, and I look forward to next time. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Morty and Abe, not very religious men, are walking their dogs by the temple Saturday morning. Morty says, hey, let's go in. I hear they have great chopped liver at Kiddish every Shabbos. And Abe says, they'll never let us go in with dogs. So Morty says, just follow my lead. And into the temple he goes. The shamus, the caretaker, the doorkeeper, stops him and says, no dogs in the shul. And Morty answers, it's my seeing eye dog. And the shamus says, okay, go in. Abe comes up next, and the shamus again says, No dogs allowed in the shul. And Abe answers, It's my seeing eye dog. And the shamus says, This is your seeing eye dog? A chihuahua? And Abe says, The mumsers, is that what they gave me? That was the old Jewish joke of the week special feature of Too Jewish, just for you. You should live and be well. And uh, follow your chihuahua. And now a word of Torah. What marks a man as an adult? How do we know when he moves from youthful immaturity to become a grown-up, a person in full? This week's Torah portion of Ayishlach focuses on the man who is the true father of our nation, Jacob, the way in which he becomes Israel. Throughout his colorful life, until now, Jacob has been less than a full man. Oh, he's been attractive to women. He has four wives by now. And he has been prolific. He's produced 12 children and acquired wealth, too. Cattle and sheep, livestock, real, valuable property. But he's also proven to be a manipulator, a trickster, whose most important priority is always his own needs. And while he is a strong, able man, it is his brother Esau who has been the athlete, the hunter, the toughest guy on the block. Jacob has never yet met a situation he will not try to manipulate to his own advantage almost always at the expense of others, including his own immediate family members. Suddenly, admittedly in the face of threatened destruction, he realizes it's more important to him to save others than to save himself. Jacob is returning to his homeland, Canaan, approaching the border, the Jordan River, when he's informed that his estranged and wronged brother Esau is coming to meet him at the head of an army. Forced to face Esau, he chooses to do perhaps the very first altruistic act of his whole life. He tries to save his family before he saves himself. 
He divides his family into two camps, sets up a rich present, a, a bribe for Esau, and then he confronts his fears. Jacob gets up in the middle of the night, terrified of the coming encounter with his well-armed and accompanied brother, and goes alone to an island in the river. We don't know why he ends up in a famous wrestling match, the cage-fighting championship of Canaan, nor do we know against whom he is wrestling. We only know that Jacob ultimately prevails at the cost of a serious physical injury, a limp that plagues him the rest of his life. And we know that his name is changed to Israel, the name that becomes our name as a people, Am Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, the people and the children of Israel, and the name of the land that will be ours, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. It's notable that Jacob in this encounter shows his own physical prowess, as we are taught somehow that men must, but it is perhaps most noteworthy that Jacob demonstrates that prowess over someone other than a human opponent. For in Vayishlach, Jacob overcomes his own yetzer, his own nature, which has directed him until now towards selfishness and manipulation. He becomes here, for the first time, a man in full. And when he rises to meet Esau, limping off to greet him, he does so with the deepest possible commitment to his children, his family, and the future of his people. It is those commitments that mark how Jacob becomes an archetypal Jewish man, dedicated to the values that ultimately matter most. And it is this moment, this transformative growth, that allows the brothers to surprisingly resolve their lifelong differences and reunite. It is that transformation of nature, our own natures, the ways in which we grow from adolescence to maturity, that allow each of us to fulfill the commitments we make as adults. May we learn from Jacob's struggles what it takes to truly be a man, to be an adult. And may we demonstrate those great qualities, and so go from strength to strength. When we come back in a moment, our guest this morning, Mike Rothschild, tells us how Jewish space lasers may not be the craziest conspiracy theory of all, and how, well, the ancient biases and prejudices and conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds turned into conspiracy theories about George Soros, all part of the craziness of our world. Hear about it when we return in a moment on Too Jewish. We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. release of the 50 Israeli hostages, including some dual citizens of other countries, dominated the news last week, as, as it should. The release of 150 Palestinian prisoners in exchange and the four-day ceasefire that gave Hamas terrorists an advantage during Israel's war to eradicate the cruel and evil Palestinian terrorist group was also prominent on every news outlet. Less obvious was the continued anti-Israel bias in much of the mainstream media. I'm not sure why this should be true. 
For example, about 300,000 people joined the pro-Israel rally on the Mall at Washington, D.C. a week and a half ago, yet all the major media outlets said there were tens of thousands, that the organizers claimed that there were 300,000 people present. Photos clearly demonstrated the totals. Experts estimated that total, 300,000. Why pretend there were fewer supporters of Israel than there were at this massive support rally? Now, a couple of dozen pro-Palestinian terrorist people rally on a college campus, and that gets full news coverage. We're told that the crowd grew and grew, even when the numbers supporting the terrorists are actually quite modest. Well, same thing about the coverage of the tunnels underneath the hospitals, which demonstrate Hamas was using them as military headquarters. It's always the Israeli media claimed, or the Israeli military said, not, here's pictures, this is what happened. Do you think anti-Israel bias might be based in some deep-seated anti-Semitism in the media? Or is it just that our public media likes to cover the negative? After all, it attracts more viewers. While the pro-Israel rallies and the demonstrations of the evils of Hamas don't create the same kind of buzz. After all, pro-Israel rallies don't shout hostile slogans that rhyme so much. It makes for less dramatic sound bites, perhaps. Only the advocates of genocide can get full coverage. <sighs> well, at a time when another powerful car maker, Elon Musk, seems to be encouraging anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, a lawsuit filed by a Jewish labor activist almost a century ago in 1925 that took down Henry Ford's anti-Semitic newspaper, The Dearborn Independent, is a real-life drama that may be on screen soon. The saga of the takedown of Ford's viciously anti-Semitic paper is set to be a movie. A Jewish interest production company is developing a film based on an academic study of Ford's anti-Semitism and the libel lawsuit that blunted its reach. Leviathan Productions is adapting the 2012 book Henry Ford's War on Jews and the Legal Battles Against Hate Speech by Victoria Saker West, a research professor at the American Bar Foundation. Well, it seems like an unlikely source, doesn't it? The book focuses on Ford's acquisition of the Dearborn Independent in 1919 and him transforming it into an anti-Semitic tabloid while at the height of his fame, power, and influence as an automotive visionary. Under Ford's ownership, the Dearborn Independent published, among other headlines, The International Jew, The World's Problem, and the paper was freely distributed into all Ford dealerships, which were everywhere in America. It played a major role disseminating the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the anti-Semitic forgery created by Tsarist secret police that purported to detail a secret plan for Jewish world domination. Well, it was Ford who got it spread throughout the U.S. That document continues to animate anti-Semitism today worldwide. Aaron Sapiro, a farm workers' rights advocate, sued the Dearborn Independent for libel in 1925, almost a century ago, when it published anti-Semitic allegations about his California cooperative farming movement. The trial, a couple of years later, was a major First Amendment case, but resulted in Ford agreeing to shutter the paper. 
Leviathan Productions launched a year ago with a goal of bringing more Jewish stories to the screen. It was founded by Ben Cosgrove, a film and TV producer whose credits include the Oscar-winning Syriana, and by Josh Four, a journalist and co-founder of the adventure travel brand Atlas Obscura and the online Jewish text repository Safaria, an invaluable tool, actually, for Jewish scholarship. Leviathan Productions also announced previously that it's producing a film version of The Pledge, a nonfiction account of U.S. Jews' role in Israel's 1948 War for Independence, as well as a horror film based on the Gollum of Prague. We should see some very interesting films coming out soon. And that's the Two Jewish News of Jews Round the World. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, conservative, and orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back the two Jewish art guests this morning, Mike Rothschild. He's the author of Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. He's an expert on conspiracy theories. We were talking about the origins of them. Um, Let's jump to modern times. What's the origin of the theory that Jews are controlling the world, because most anti-Semitism in antiquity and all the way through the Middle Ages had Jews doing something nefarious that for their own rituals, or maybe they were poisoning a well or something, but it certainly didn't involve Jews taking over the world. We had no possibility of even being thought of that way. What changed? Right. So a lot of the myths and conspiracy theories about Jews were financial. Um, the idea that Jews were specifically uh, conspiring amongst themselves to take control of the world that really emerges in the 1920s with the English and essentially Western translations of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was written by Tsarist secret police as an anti-Semitic document, right? That's what we know about it now. Um, it you know, purported to be the secret document of how the Jews were taking over the world. But there was certainly some envy when, like, say, the Rothschild family got rich. 
Oh, sure. There, there, was, a, there was a great deal of anti-Semitic uh, sentiment based particularly around the Rothschilds and Jewish wealth in general that really started in probably the late 1840s. And I talk quite a bit about this in the book because it's really the starting point for the greater Rothschild myth. Uh, you had the socialist revolutions of 1848 that really codified a lot of this anti-wealth sentiment that was going on. And unfortunately, for the growing socialist movement, they they sort of took this anti-wealth sentiment out on prominent Jewish banking families. And in Europe, and in particularly in France, the Rothschilds were the most prominent. So it made a certain amount of sense that the ire of this movement would fall on the most well-known prominent Jewish banking family. Now, that that morphed from uh, jealousy about the wealth, they're, they're rich, greedy Jews who keep all the money. I mean, you know, that, that stereotype goes back to Jews being forced to be money lenders and, you know, the Shylock stereotype in Shakespeare and so on. But it, it changes into this massive conspiracy idea in the 20th century. Um, are the Roth the Rothschilds are still part of this? I mean, not for real, but in these theories, right? Right. Uh, you know, there are countless modern mentions of the Rothschilds on social media, in recently printed books, in new videos. They have been usurped to some degree by George Soros. But you know, if you if you poke under Soros conspiracy theories, you're going to find Rothschilds. So. It's fascinating to me because I have heard Jews talk about how terrible George Soros is, and I'm thinking, you just bought something that's being sold. Um, why is this attractive to people? Well, the, there is always going to be a need for someone to be in charge of the vast conspiracy that is responsible for all of the ills of the world, of the country, and of your own personal finances. So much of the conspiracy theorizing and scapegoating is, is people trying to absolve themselves of their own failings and their own uh, bad decisions. And it's very easy to blame a Jewish cabal or a Jewish banker for your own business going belly up or things you things that you wanted not coming true. So there's always going to be a certain amount of scapegoating that happens, and it is doubly easy to scapegoat wealthy Jews simply because so many generations of cranks before them have already done it. Who is attracted to conspiracy theories? Well, the, the, the broad answer is really that everybody has some susceptibility to the right theory that hits them at the right time in the right way. You know, we saw during the pandemic people who would, would not consider themselves conspiracy theory believers becoming radicalized by boredom and loneliness and not really understanding what was going on around them. And they look for answers and they find it in the people telling them, blame the Jews, blame China, blame Bill Gates, blame Fauci. We are all looking for easy answers to difficult problems and conspiracy theories provide them. So I would say that anybody is susceptible to something, now not necessarily anti-Semitism, but we are all we all have biases and we all have weak spots in our logic that can be exploited. Uh, th there's a horrific rise in anti-Semitism now on the left. Uh, it's been there on the far right. It seems like the far right and the far left agree on only one thing, which is that it's the Jews fault. Um, and there's a belief in conspiracy theories there. The Zionists are controlling everything. The Jews are running the world economy. The Jews are controlling the politics. Um, how does one combat that kind of kind of awful 
metastasization of these conspiracy theories? Well, I think the first thing that can be done is simply acknowledging it. And I, and I think that the renewed focus on anti-Semitism on the left has actually been, uh, and I wish we didn't have to do it, but it's been, uh, I think, instructive that anti-Semitism and anti-Jewish conspiracy theories are not simply a conservative thing. They're certainly not simply a Trump era thing or a social media thing. I mean, you know, some of the earliest major conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds came from communities that we would consider far less now, the socialist movement. So I think just knowing that this is happening is, is helpful and sort of acknowledging it. And I think pushing back against it, forcefully calling it out when we see it and saying that, no, criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitic, but assuming that all American Jews think alike and all support Israel over America, that is anti-Semitic. So I think just Naming it, calling it out, drawing attention to it, and forcefully pushing back on not just that it's anti-Semitism, but why it's anti-Semitic, what makes it anti-Semitic, that, I think, is a productive conversation that everyone can have. I've been fascinated in a kind of horrifying way by the fact that you see the blood libel circulating in anti-Israel rallies, and that's been going on for a while. Um, you know, that somehow Jews are using the blood, and it's not symbolic. Sometimes it's just like flat out there. This goes back a thousand years, nearly 900 years, I think. I mean, I don't even know the right way to respond to these kinds of things. I mean, it's out there for sure. Um, No logic to it. No, there's no logic to it. And trying to find logic in it is a very frustrating process because it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, if you look at some of the more recent anti-Semitic conspiracy theories like QAnon. It doesn't make any sense. It's not designed to. It's not supposed to. What it's supposed to do is make you feel good. Makes you feel like you know things, that you have secret knowledge, that you found a community, that you are fighting back against the bad guys. So in this case, it's not about facts. It's not about logic. It's about feelings and and biases and feeling like you know something that other people don't, even if it's not true. So uh, what's the weirdest fact that you unearthed in writing Jewish space lasers? And by the way, Jewish space lasers, that was pretty weird altogether. But what's well, the weirdest? Definitely weird. <laughs> what's the weirdest thing that you unearthed in writing uh, the Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories? I think the the if I had to say kind of my favorite one of these things is this theory that was advanced in the 1920s by this exiled Russian monarchist who had moved to Staten Island to start a pan-Slavic nation. He came up with this theory that several of the Rothschild heirs um, conspired with Benjamin Disraeli, the former prime minister of England, at a wedding in the late 1850s to divide the United States between the Rothschilds and Canada would get the North and France would get the South and they'd concoct the civil war to, to do all of this. And, and like slavery had nothing to do with it. It was just this hopelessly complicated plot by the Rothschilds to divide America. And this, you know, exiled Russian count is the one who figured it all out. Um, it, it, it's one of those things that is so operatically bizarre. It feels like something out of a movie but this guy had a following, and this theory got picked up by all kinds of different people. Um, it was a really big hit in the social credit movement in Canada in the 1940s. Um, it's a big hit with David Icke right now. He's written about it a lot. Um, 
so it's this just bizarre theory that somehow is just so cinematic that it's just got it just got a following. I want to thank Mike Rothschild for a great visit here on Two Jewish. His book is called Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. If you want to understand them better, including how weird their development was, it's a fascinating book. Mike, where can people go to find out more about you, more about the book? Sure. So I'm, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm still out there fighting the good fight, at least for now. I'm at Rothschild MD. And the book is available in hardcover, uh, ebook, audiobook, and you can get it um, anywhere books are sold. Couldn't be more timely. Thank you so much. Thank you. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Don Futterman, author of the terrific new coming-of-age novel, Adam Unrehearsed. And please join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night. Services in Oneg Shabbat, 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 2, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services. Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person, available on our Facebook page, and all led by me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. And coming up, Sunday, December 10th, the 5th anniversary celebration of Congregation Beit Simcha, lighting the way for Hanukkah and our big birthday. Go to BeitSimcha2Sun.org to sign up and celebrate. Our play out this morning for Hanukkah, coming up in a week and a half, Thursday, December 7th, and every night thereafter. It's Leslie Odom Jr.'s version of Ma'oz Tzur with Nicolette Robinson, a very jazzy rendition of Rock of Ages, the traditional Hanukkah song. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of justice and just maybe peace. Sponsored by Two Jewish Radio Programs, Tucson, Arizona.